And so if you'll find your place in Ezra chapter 7, as you're finding it, let's stand and let me thank you again for allowing me to go and be an encouragement in, in a place like Peru, whether it's India or Peru. I'll tell you, with Peru, uh, it's a place where I can go back and I need to take some folks with me. The nature of the work, uh, these pastors' families are struggling, and a lot of them are having um, children. It, it, they sacrifice so much, and many times their children see all the things that are available to those who aren't sacrificing, and they're losing their families, and we need to do some family ministry there. And, and so I, I hope to take... Um, uh, Pastor Ben back with me, and uh, maybe uh, uh, an Awana leader back with me, and um, and a few other folks. So if I can get this worked out with Benny, we'll we'll continue to. Uh, God's doing some things. I can't wait to share that that will take place in the future. So Ezra chapter seven. Let's just read the first few verses to get started. First part of verse one, and we'll look at verse three. Um, or verse 6, it says, After these things, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, and here's his name, Ezra. Who was Ezra? What was he all about? Who was this scribe? It gives you his family lineage, and I'm going to skip past that since we would all struggle with pronouncing some of their names. But he says, he came up from Babylon, verse 6. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses which the Lord God of Israel had given. Notice, law. it was called the law of Moses, but it wasn't from Moses. God gave it directly, and I believe that is true of all of Scripture, that we see the, the heart and the mind and personality of the writers, but it is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that it comes to us, as we'll see in other passages in a moment. But God had given him this word, and the king had granted him everything he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was on him. God's hand was on Ezra in a special way. And I believe it had very much to do with not only the fact that he preached the book, the law of the Lord, but he also lived it. And I think both are important. So um, we'll look at some verses out of 7, 8, 9, and 10 as we kind of summarize and make some concluding remarks from Ezra. And then we'll get into Nehemiah. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and guidance in his word. Father, we give you thanks and praise this day, Lord. It is so good to be with my home church, my church family, people that you've called me to do life with, to share and, and to love and to lead. And Lord, I pray that I would always see a great responsibility to stay uh, before you and before your word, leading according to your word and not caught up in the whims of this world. Give us your wisdom and understanding that we might all be who you've called us to be, to lead this church, to lead our families, and to make a difference in this world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Ezra brought spiritual leadership in secular times. We certainly live in a secular world. We for a long time, talked about a uh, postmodernism. Now we live in what they're calling a post-Christian time, even here in the United States of America. I pray that it's not a post-Christian time. Well, we need to know that that's the way secular society sees it. We have to kind of call it what it is if we're going to meet people where they're at and lead and minister in times like these. Times aren't always going to be easy, and it's going to be more and more difficult. 
for people all over the world, from Peru to India, the United States, to take a stand for the things of God in secular times, to do what is totally contrary. Now, in Peru, the biggest sport was soccer, and uh, I know my nephews, um, my sister's kids, play uh, a lot of soccer, and soccer's real big, and, and I told the Peruvians over there, I got to mentioning American football, there were two fans of uh, football and Americana, but everybody else said real football is what you folks in the United States call soccer. I said, man, I could score 10 goals in less than five minutes, nothing to soccer, no problem. Some of you play soccer and you're going, no way. So 10 goals in five minutes, I could do it in less than that, I believe, as long as the other team's not on the field. I think I could score 10 goals in a little bit of time. And the truth of the matter is, the principles we're learning in Ezra, if there was no opposition, if we didn't live in a secular world, if things weren't contrary to what we're trying to do, it'd be pretty easy to apply these principles. But the fact of the matter is, you're trying to live a Christian life, applying biblical principles in a world that they're just not well received. And so Israel was struggling with that as they were settling back in. We saw a couple of weeks ago, looking between chapter 6 and chapter 7, somewhere in there we pick up the story of Esther, and she took a stand for the things of God in such a time as this. And I challenged our people, uh, and I challenged our guests who were here, so many public servants from across this county and state, I challenge them, let, let's take a stand for the things of God when they may not be popular in, in secular times. And Esther took a, a risky stand by the grace of God such a time as this, and God rewarded that and delivered his people as a result of that. Notice Ezra joins the party here, so to speak. He, he joins what's going on in the land that was promised to them. This is the second return. Not many came back with Ezra. Hundreds did, but many, many thousands still had not returned. And so it's interesting that how when God is making a way, it doesn't mean everybody wants to get involved. And sometimes we scratch our head. God can give a group of people a vision, give them direction, and like, ah, I really don't know if I'm ready to embrace that. Whether it's your family, whether you're talking about a church, God opens doors, gives opportunities, gives responsibilities. Be careful that you're not one of those that's so comfortable in Babylon saying, hey, listen, I know this isn't God's best, but it'll do, and I'm not taking any risk, and I'm comfortable here, so I'm just going to kind of stay where I'm at. The day that you think you can begin to coast in the Christian life, you're going to start rolling backwards. And so don't be at home in Babylon. Don't, don't be comfortable in a secular society, expect a little friction and expect that you should be swimming upstream when everybody's going the other way. And so Ezra comes into the picture here. We read this name, Artaxerxes again, who had been referred to as that king of secular history at a time where really you didn't have to have someone you referred to as a god. He's been considered the, the king of secular history, so that's interesting. Part of the historical cultural background of this passage and Ezra emerges out of that. Remember, Zerubbabel brought the first group in. He focused on building the temple. We got the altar in place. Everything was ready there. Now Ezra is going to help us get the Word of God in its proper place. And his message will be overlapping a little bit in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is going to focus on the walls. We'll learn a lot about building for the kingdom when it comes to the importance of those walls as Nehemiah will lead that third return. But just a couple of principles I want to share with you this morning in these last chapters of Ezra. 
And I think they are principles that as a church, we have said that we stand on these things, but we will always be tested as to whether or not we are going to do that. As a family, you may say these two areas are important, but you will be tested as to whether or not you're going to keep them as central in your life, in your home, and certainly us as a church. And the first one, we'll notice what Ezra brought in his leadership was a growing commitment to the Word of God. A growing commitment to the Word of God. Why was that? Well, verse, tell, verse 6 tells us, as we read a moment ago, he was a scribe, he was skilled in the law of Moses. The, the Word of God that had been revealed to that time, he was skilled in understanding that. He was skilled in applying that and teaching them how to live by those standards and what the consequences would be if they did not. And so as a result of that, God's hand, it says the Lord, the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. God's hand is not on blessing your agenda or my agenda, but on blessing his will and his work. Now look down at verse 9 with me in this chapter as well. It says, he began the journey to Babylon on the first day of the first month and arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. The gracious hand of his God was on him. They needed the hand of God to protect their caravan, uh, relatively speaking, small numbers moving in through these difficult areas on this journey where they could have been robbed and hurt in so many different ways. And it says, here's the reason why God's hand was upon him. Because Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, you've got to be a good student of the Word, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances to Israel. So what was Ezra all about? He says, I want to know the book. I want to know the law of the Lord. And not just know it, but obey it. Every preacher I know that's worth his salt will preach that message to himself before he preaches it to everybody else. And I'm not going to say as a pastor, I have um, mastered applying all of God's Word to my life. I am growing in grace just as you are, but I will say the Holy Spirit preaches it to me before I can bring it to you. And sometimes I say a lot of omis before I say amens. And so he was committed to obey the law of the Lord. And then look at verses 11 and 12. After he begins to preach it to others, he says, this is the text of the letter of King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, the priest and the scribe, the expert, what does it call him here? An expert in matters of the Lord's commandments and statutes for Israel. He saw mastering the law of God as a priority in his life. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra, the priest, an expert in the law of God and of heaven. What do I mean to be an expert in the law of God and an expert in the laws of heaven? He could see, Ezra could study the Word of God, and behind the precepts, discover the kingdom principles. That's what the book of uh, Matthew 5-7, through 7, the, the Sermon on the Mount, is all about. Jesus is saying, you know the law of God, can you study the law of God and see that there are kingdom principles to live by behind every law. God doesn't just give us laws and precepts of Scripture so that we could say, well, I know more Scripture than you, but that we could look behind every principle 
and every precept and see kingdom principles about which we can build our lives so that when you begin to know the Word of God, you may not be able to say chapter, line, and verse, but you know there are some kingdom principles that you live by, and Ezra had mastered that ability to communicate those principles. We need in our nation, we need in our church, we need teachers and preachers who will stick to the book and help people discover kingdom principles by which to live. Now, after the letter, look down at verses 27 and 28 and see that there's a certain humility that comes with this. Praise the Lord, God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's mind to glorify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Ezra didn't say, well, you know, I'm such a good apologist on the things of God that I was able to convince the king. No, he gave God all the glory. He said, look, the Holy Spirit's doing something. There are Sundays that I can stand and I can preach this book and the Holy Spirit does something in somebody's life that had nothing to do with what I preach. There are times that I can stand and preach this book and I'll think, boy, I really blew it that day. Preachers think that sometimes. Sometimes we say, man, that one was a dud. And somebody in tears will say, here's what God's doing in my life. The other Sundays we might feel, as pastors and preachers, we might feel like we knocked it out of the park. Uh, Pastor Ben may bring a message on a Wednesday night to, a, to teenagers and say, man, that was dynamite. And we're like, why didn't the people respond? Listen, when God does a work, it's because the Holy Spirit of God illuminates the Word of God in the life of the believer, and He will do it through the preacher, and sometimes He will do it in spite of the preacher. But it's the Lord of this universe who gave us this book that does the work. Our job is to be faithful, to live it, obey it, and teach it as Ezra did. And so he brought this commitment this growing commitment to the Word of God as he came with these people on the second return. And he brought it with great humility, recognizing verse 27 and then 28. It says, And who has shown favor, that's grace, to me before the king, his counselors, and all his powerful officers. So I took courage because I was strengthened by the Lord my God. That's what I was praying would happen to these pastors in Peru, that's what I need you to pray in my life, that we would have courage and boldness because we're strengthened by God, not trying to do this thing in the flesh. And he says, I gathered the Israelite leaders to return with me. And chapter 8 gives us a list of those leaders. So he, he wanted to be an expert. He wanted to be skilled in the law. I, I began reading a, a book that I hope to encourage other people to read, but uh, Mitch gave me a, a book uh, a, about a resilient life. One of my uh, favorite authors that I, I like to read, uh, Gordon MacDonald, wrote the book. And so I started reading it on the trip. But you know what made me want to read it? Is that Mitch said, hey, I've read this book, or I've been reading this book, and I want to give you a copy. If he had given me a book and said, and I said, oh, is it a good book? I don't know, I haven't read it then I wouldn't have borne it, well, except for the fact I knew the author, but it makes a difference when somebody says, but I've read the book. And, and, and so it's important for us as believers, it's important for us as pastors that we spend time in the Word of God if we're going to pass on these principles and we're going to expect the next generation to live by them, it's important for us to know and understand and obey and live the book. 
And we've got today in our world a generation even of pastors who have not spent time in this book. I've even expressed reservation about being on certain ordination councils because while the scriptures tell us not to ordain a novice, a new believer, someone who hasn't had time to grapple with the things of God and with this book, we're so quick, especially in rural areas in northeast Georgia and really all over this nation, to take people who have not yet had time to be saturated with the Word of God. And listen, we'll never master it. But we're so quick to put people in the ministry not knowing what they really believe about this book or even if they've read it all yet. But the result of knowing and doing things God's way made all the difference in the world. The conclusion of chapter 8, verse 31, says we set out from the Ahava River on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. We were strengthened by our God. He protected us from the power of the enemy and from ambush along the way. We arrived at Jerusalem and rested there for three days. Because Ezra was leading by the book, because he knew the book, he admonished the people, and the hand of the Lord was upon them, they made it. <laughs> they reached the destination. They, they, they arrived at where, where God was calling them to. And as a church, and, and looking at your family specifically, if we'll do things God's way in God's strength with God's hands upon us, we'll make it. <laughs> you might be going through something. You're saying, Pastor, I don't know if I'm going to get through this. You walk through it in the power of the Holy Spirit according to the Word of God, and you'll make it. Your family will make it. Your marriage will make it. But do it God's way, according to God's Word, so that His hand is on it. And as a church, let's never compromise that standard. God's Word, God's way. Now, as we cross over into the New Testament and ask, well, how do we kind of apply these principles as New Testament believers? Paul told Timothy, remember? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration. And so it means every word there is inspired by God. And it's profitable. It says, Timothy, when you teach when you correct, when you, when you rebuke somebody, when you train them in righteousness, you try to teach them how to live a life, it's the Word of God that you're going to have to use, not the wisdom of man. I've heard, even in this state, one of the pastors of the largest churches in this state say that it's not necessary to do expository preaching. And the kind of preaching he was promoting was basically something that anybody in here could do if you come up with some things that you would like to say and Google some verses to tag those things as support, then you could do that kind of preaching. And I'm not going to say that I'll never do some topical preaching where I hit topics, and, but I better be sure I take every verse out of a particular context and preach it with that context in mind. So we have to be real careful not to stray from the Word of God. He goes on to say, that Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16, verse 17, he says that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In chapter 4, he'll continue. Timothy, here's your job as a pastor. Preach the Word. He says, be ready in season and out of season. But preach the word. He said, there's going to be a time that will come when they don't want to hear it. Preach it anyway. 
preach the word of God. Well, what about felt needs that people have? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we address the needs that people have? Listen, I would be arrogant as a pastor if I said I understand your needs more than God does. And the God who wrote this book understands your needs so much more than I'll ever understand them. So rather than me trying to come up with the medication that you need, I'm just going to seek to give you what God said to give you. And that is as many doses of this book as we can get. This is what you need to lead your family with, as much of this as we can get. And so Paul told Timothy, preach the word in season, out of season. Before he said all that in chapter 2, In verse 15, he had already said, study or be diligent. A lot of the uh, Awana kids might recognize this as a theme verse in Awana. But he says, listen, be ready to rightly divide the word of truth. Handle it accurately. Spend time in study, knowing the word. When I came here as your pastor... A lot of years ago, I asked the pastor search committee, are you looking for a pastor to be more of a chaplain, to be sure that he's um, always there all day in the hospitals and everywhere else, or a pastor who will spend more time in the Word of God, or a pastor who will spend more time doing administrative things? And they said, look, we've got people in our church who can do administrative things, we've got networks that will help you do care ministry, but we want you to primarily devote yourself to the Word of God. And I felt like that was a good match. And I love people, and I want to be there. And you know that. I want to care for people. I want to be in homes when I'm needed to be in homes. I want to be in hospitals when I'm needed to be in the hospitals. Because I love you, I care for you, I want to minister in those contexts as much as possible. But I never want to neglect the Word of God. That's got to be the one area where God says, as a pastor, you better know it, and you better lead according to it. So I give myself to that, and I pray that as the one who leads your home. I pray that fathers and mothers will commit themselves to the Word of God. And men, so many times the ladies outdo us in the time they spend studying the Word of God. We've got to get into the Word and let the Word of God saturate us on a regular basis. So know that and live by that. Watch God work through that. Then we network that ministry within the church. We'll see this again in Nehemiah chapter 8. But in Nehemiah chapter 8, they call for Ezra. They're like, man, bring the book. Bring the book. There, The scene is at the water gate in Jerusalem. And, and, and Ezra brings the book. And that's the story that we get a lot of our pattern for reading the Scriptures together today. But as Ezra opens the book, or he would have unrolled the scroll of the book at that time. As he opened that scroll, the people stood. As he read, they stood. And he went verse by verse. And then it says, this is cool what they did after that. They, and we'll see this again in Nehemiah chapter 8 when we get there. But they broke up into small groups. And what did they do in, in small groups? They explained what that book meant. They explained what the law of Moses meant, working through those verses together. And so it's so important for you as a member of this church family to get involved in a small group. We call them life groups here. 
But we can do things in life groups that we can't do in a large group setting. We can break it down verse by verse. We can talk. We can have dialogue. We can have explanation. And every one of our teachers has a responsibility that's just as great as mine to the Word of God from all the way down to the preschool where our kids, praise God, in the preschool years are learning the principles of the Word of God all the way up through our adult classes. We are breaking this Word down and explaining it in that context. So they had small groups. As they began to explain that in Nehemiah chapter 8, and there were leaders, especially the Levites, but others who would explain these matters, the principles based on the precepts of God. Listen, if a college student comes to me and says, look, I'm going off to school somewhere. Hey, man, I'm going to be three states over. I'd love to stay at Trinity, but I've got to find me a church home. It's easy if I say, well, what you want to do is find you a good Baptist church, but that's not usually what I say. I don't usually name a denomination. I always say, find you a Bible-believing church. You find a church where they preach and teach and stand upon the Word of God, you get plugged into that church. A good Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church that stands on the Word of God. Then you learn to make your life and family and ministry decisions according to that Word. Secondly and finally this morning, in, in living this out, it's not always easily, but Ezra brought a godly confrontation of the ways of the world. He brought a commitment to the Word of God, but when the Word conflicts with the ways of the world and the people of God are caught up in the ways of the world, then the Word of God has to confront that. And so Ezra very brokenheartedly, lovingly brought a godly confrontation to the ways of of this world. Look at chapter 9. It says, After these things had been done, the leaders approached me and said, The people of Israel, the priests, and the Levites have not separated themselves from the surrounding peoples, whose this is a key part of it right here detestable practices are like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites. Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites, and flashlights, and mosquitoites, and all the otherites. Indeed, they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy people has become mixed with the surrounding peoples. Again, that's another key to understanding what he's saying here. Godly people compromising their stand, being involved in relationships with people who are involved in detestable practices. The leaders and officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. And he said, when I heard this report, I tore my tunic and robe. I pulled out some of my hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down devastated, brokenhearted, because God's people were getting caught up in the ways of the world. There's two extremes for the leader Ezra. He could, have, he could have ignored it. He could have avoided confrontation. And sometimes as a pastor, it's hard to confront things. Sometimes as a leader, sometimes as a mom or as a dad, you know your kids get involved in things that go against the law of the Lord, the principles and precepts of Scripture. And you say, well, I don't want there to be an argument. I don't want there to be conflict in the home. I don't want there to be conflict in my marriage. I don't want there to be conflict in the church. So I'm just not going to say anything and maybe it will go away because I don't want to confront detestable acts. And it doesn't go away. 
it just continues to grow. It just continues to corrupt. Things continue to get worse. I don't want to say anything. What if I push them away? Listen, you're not helping them out by not confronting them. And as a pastor, sometimes I have to address certain things. And again, God has to preach this to me first, and I have to take it to others at times and say, listen, that's not according to the principles and the precepts of God's Word. There's New Testament approaches to church discipline, and it's hard when we have to enact those. But we could avoid. The other is abuse. Ezra could have arrogantly taken the law of Moses and just beat him over the head with it and shown no love whatsoever, but a loving confrontation is a confrontation done with a broken heart. Look at verse 4. Everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles while I sat devastated until the evening offering. At the evening offering, I got up from my humiliation with my tunic and robe torn. Then I fell on my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, my God, I am ashamed and I'm embarrassed to lift my face toward you. He didn't say that's their sin, that's their problem. He says, it's our sin and we've got to deal with this. He says, because our iniquities are higher than our heads and our guilt is as high as the heavens. He goes on to pour out this broken heart. I believe it's okay for leaders to be broken before the people that they're seeking to minister to. I think it's great when children hear the tears of a mom or a dad praying for them, they hear that broken heart. So he's broken before them. Has your family ever heard you broken hearted over the sins that are tolerated, made even by themselves? The things that break the heart of God should break our hearts. I don't know why they got involved in these unholy marriages. I think there's probably three reasons. I think it partly it could have been ignorance. Remember, Ezra's bringing them back to a commitment to the law of the Lord, and maybe for a moment they weren't thinking about what God's laws had said. I think it, there could have been a little bit of impatience involved. I mean, a lot of times on a trip like this, on a journey like this, there may be a lot of men who would go ahead of their wives and so they were over there and they were tired and they were lonely and there's a generation coming up that hasn't married yet and, and, and they're saying listen man I'm not waiting on the good girl to get here and, and so maybe the intermarriage was partly because of impatience but the number one reason that scripture lives here is because of their idolatry as you see this great confession in chapter 8 as you see what he was broken for these detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, they were worshiping other gods. And Ezra has to go in and say, listen, this is not going to be the case, and we're going to go back, and you're going to put these wives away, and we're going to get this right. Let me be clear here, and this probably isn't popular to say in Madison County, but again, my commitment's to the Word of God, and not to anybody else, right? It's, it, it's to the God of the Word and the Word of God. He was not confronting interracial marriage here. He was confronting marriage between those of the people of God who had a faith in God and those of detestable 
practices, the New Testament also tells us, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It makes it very clear that a Christian who loves the Lord Jesus Christ should only marry another Christian who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I had much rather one of my children marry someone from Peru or India, the uttermost parts of the world, that loves Jesus than to marry someone from next door that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Much rather that happen. And so what he was saying is you're getting involved in detestable acts. Now there may be someone here this morning saying, oh, does that mean if a Christian marries a non-Christian, they need to put them away or get a divorce? We always look through the lens of the New Testament and ask what living in this dispensation of grace says. And this dispensation of grace and understanding the New Testament tells us that we're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, but if that's happened according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it doesn't mean that your kids have to be defiled. It doesn't mean that you have to get a divorce. If you are abandoned, it says then you're free. If the unbeliever abandons a believer and divorces them, then you're free to remarry a Christian. But it says you don't have to seek a divorce. Not only that, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, that hey, there may be some ladies out there and you're married to a man who's not a Christian and I mean, he's just a total jerk, but he says you, by your lifestyle, your love for the Lord Jesus and the way you live according to the Word of God, you might win him the faith in Christ. So don't bail out on that marriage just because you're married to an unbeliever. Seek to live like Ezra lived according to the Word of God. Obey it and love according to the Word of God, and you might win that person to faith in Christ. And so I'm not, I'm not, if you're saying, man, I, I'm married to someone, they're involved in detestable acts, do I need to leave them? The answer is no. Seek to win them for the glory of God. They were laying foundations here as they were returning to Israel, and Ezra was saying, we've got to lay these foundations right. We've got to get it right from the beginning. So whether it was ignorance or impatience, I don't know, but certainly idolatry was involved. So what did he do? He lovingly confronted them with the Word of God. He was brokenhearted before them. In chapter 10, we see that he led them to make things right, to repent and to get things in order, to lay that solid foundation just like they had for the temple. Now they had to lay the solid foundation of the Word of God and get this relationship off right. So whether you're talking about a church are talking about a family, talking about any relationship, when somebody is involved in something that violates the principles and precepts of the Word of God, we have to lovingly go and confront in that matter. We've got to do so, again, according to the New Testament, when we look at Galatians chapter 6, when we look at Matthew chapter 18, we do it in a spirit of love. The goal is not to beat anybody up. The goal is not to put anybody down. It's with a broken heart ourselves that we go and we seek to see them restored into right relationship, right fellowship with God. And we do so remembering that by the grace of God we would be in their shoes and that the only reason that we have the opportunity to do what God's called us to do is because Jesus Christ died for our sins. Jesus Christ died in our place. And so as a pastor this morning, I hope you hear me loud and clear. Everybody in here is told to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles. You know what that tells me? Everybody in here has a sin that so easily entangles that we grapple with. And my, God is, my goal before my God is not to beat you up with the Word of God, nor neglect the Word of God, but bring a loving confrontation on a regular basis 
with the Word of God. And when the Word of God is in conflict with the ways of the world, we stand with the Word of God every time. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, I, I give you praise and thanks for what you're doing. And Lord, I, I do so humbly knowing that if we're not faithful to your word, if we're not faithful to the principles and the precepts of the kingdom of God, to become skilled in handling it, obeying it, and teaching it, then we forfeit our right to have your hand upon us. So, Lord, I pray that we would be good stewards of that trust, the trust that you've given us to hold your word in our hands. Lord, don't let us take that flippantly because we have it as an app on our phone. We have preachers all over our television set. And we have free access to the house of God. Help us to never take for granted what an awesome treasure we have. Thank you for the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians 3, 8, to me who am less than the least of these saints. This grace was given that I might preach the unsearchable riches of Christ among the Gentiles. Help us to be faithful to that task, to never water it down, to give you the glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.